Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The biggest side effect of struggling with a sexual problem is the feeling of isolation, the feeling of being alone. And I say that all the time because... It's just so unnecessary, quite honestly. Like people don't need to feel alone in what they're experiencing. I believe that's because we don't have a kind of healthy sexual culture. We don't have a normalized everydayness to sex. Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast, a show that explores the mind, soul, science and health as we speak with world leading experts each week. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author, entrepreneur, and happiness researcher. Life is not straightforward, so join me as we navigate being human together and become what I like to call flexible thinkers. I believe that curiosity and education is the route for more happiness, love, connectedness, and the doorway to unlocking your unlimited potential. I hope you join me on the journey. Before we continue, I want to tell you about my secret to smelling good and keeping it natural. Yes, my sponsor for this week is Wild, the UK's number one natural deodorant company that's kind to you and our planet. You know how sometimes natural deodorants just don't quite do the job? Well, I can assure you, Wild does, and I'm currently smelling like a delicious coconut. I can safely say this deodorant will keep you super fresh even when you're running, dancing, or getting your body moving, as it's 24-hour certified. Wild deodorant has a fully sustainable design. It's vegan, cruelty-free, low-cost, and stylish too. There are so many delicious scents to choose from, and all made with natural ingredients. You can buy a one-off or sign up to a flexible subscription. Wild are currently offering Not Perfect listeners an exclusive 20% off your first deodorant. So head to their website at wearewild.com and use the code NOTPERFECT, that's all one word, at checkout to take advantage of this amazing discount. A topic that's slowly becoming more spoken about is sexual wellness. And with this new liberation spreading the globe, I wanted to invite one of the UK's leading psychosexual relationship therapist and psychosexologist, Kate Moyle, onto the podcast to discuss further. A recent study found that nearly half of 25 to 34-year-old women complained of a lack of sexual enjoyment. And another study found that people in Britain were having less sex than they once did. These numbers sound bleak, but behind any problem, there's always solutions or steps forward. The wonderful Kate specializes in working with everyone who is struggling with difficulties with their sex lives and sexuality who are impacted by the stresses of modern life. Kate helps thousands of people recognize their personal understanding of sexuality and sexual health and takes the view that all issues, including sexual ones, have roots in psychology, emotion, the physical body, and a person's history and culture. Ultimately, Kate's work is about helping people get to a place of sexual health, happiness, and well-being. What is a favorite quote you return to often and why? 
anything by Esther Perel, um, <laughs> who is my absolute idol. Um, but a quote that I have kind of known my whole life, I have no idea who said it or where it came from, is the people who mind don't matter and the people who matter don't mind. And someone said it to me when I was kind of, I think, a teenager. And it's always stuck with me. And I think it's even more relevant in the kind of modern world that we live in. And, you know, we see everyone kind of offering opinions on everyone else very freely. And then I had another one, actually, which was from Esther Perel. And it was, it's hard to experience desire when you're weighed down by concern. Mm. And I love that because I think it's so relevant to everything, really, not just sexual desire, where I think it is incredibly apparent as well. Wow, I can't wait to talk to you about the relationship between kind of sex and stress, one that isn't explored and you really do explore in your work. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently and why? Recently, saying no and kind of not being afraid to say no and knowing where your no is. So I recently became a parent for the second time. So I've now got two kids and I run my own business. I run my own therapy practice. And I think that balance is something that I haven't always got right and I'm really working to get right this time and saying no is a massive part of that and I actually think that I kind of do my worst to everything parenting work when I'm taking on too much and doing too much and I think when I'm operating better I'm more creative I'm more curious I'm more interested and I have more kind of headspace available so saying no is my life lesson, which is um, very apparent at the moment. How do you understand the idea of soul? I think for me, it's a kind of emotional, like an emotional energy, I guess, is how I thought about it. It's the version of us perhaps we want to be kind of remembered for, or this like idea of inner being or essence. And for me, I guess it's how we interact with the world, like what kind of person do we want to be in the world? So one of the the big pillars, I think, probably for our family, you know, my family is kindness. Mm. And I think that's what soul means, I think. Um, I'm open to hearing what other people think about it, but I think that's where I'm at. That's such a lovely way. I love that idea of what we want to be remembered for. So thank you for that. That's a lovely way to start. So firstly, what brought you in to focusing your therapy practice on the idea of sexual wellness how did that journey begin for you and because I imagine when you started it was even more new yeah I think it's been around you know for a while and we saw that Masters and Johnson kind of were kicking everything off in the 60s and it really was very eyebrow raising I suppose then and they were real pioneers but I think there's been sexuality research forever really when you kind of get into the history of it and people exploring and anatomy and really I've always been fascinated with human psychology with what makes people tick how do humans work I suppose and I've never really understood why sex holds this different space to everything else I've always been quite interested by that or how sex can be so emotive or can create so much judgment or such strong reactions from people. So when I started training as a therapist, I just, from narrowing down what I knew I didn't want to do, I was really interested in that. And I'd 
been studying psychology and I kind of moved into that space and it just all clicked into place. So I was like, yeah. And I was really, really interested at the time with evolutionary psychology and so much of the reproductive side of sex comes into that. And I was fascinated in how people socially think about sex and how still people use lots of references to evolution for like why we do what we do. Do you think we're in an evolutionary crisis given the fact that people are having less sex than they've ever had before, people perhaps are like breaking up more than ever before, people having less babies than ever before? I don't know. I think we're just adapting Mm. and God, there's so many angles to this, aren't there? Because so many people say the world's overpopulated and then we see falling birth rates in countries like Japan because sex lives have changed so much and sexual kind of norms have changed so much. I think we are just adapting. And I think the thing that we cannot keep up with evolution-wise is the internet. Mm. And I think that, you know, iPhones and the internet have changed everything in, what is the iPhone, like 12, 13 years old something like that and we cannot adapt quickly enough in order to keep up with the changes in technology Mm. and I think that is where we're seeing this battle between historic man and modern man and operating systems more to the point god that's so interesting so in your practice You write, and I thought it was just so reassuring, you know, difficulties in our sexual lives, our intimate lives and relationships are much more common than we think. I think so many of us struggle behind closed doors. And then on the outside, we're like, what are you talking about? All fine, all fine here. Like, yeah, I'd just love to know your thoughts on that. Like, what are the difficulties that perhaps we're not talking enough about? I don't think we talk about them enough at all. And I think for me, the biggest side effect of struggling with a sexual problem is the feeling of isolation Mm. um, the feeling of being alone. And I say that all the time because it's just so unnecessary, quite honestly. Like people don't need to feel alone in what they're experiencing. Sexual problems, I believe, in my practice at least, what I see anecdotally, that there are roots in anxiety to almost every sexual problem. Mm. And I work with people who are having sexual dysfunction, so things like erectile dysfunction, rapid ejaculation, um, vaginismus, sexual pain conditions. I work with people who have had cancer, who have been injured or had injuries or had operations, um, people who are struggling with miscarriages, infertility, couples struggling with desire, sexual trauma, um, people who are so anxious that they've never had sexual experiences, people who are afraid of intimacy. I think it covers so much, but we see that there is a narrative, which is I am the only person that has this, or I am alone in what I'm experiencing. And I believe that's because we don't have a kind of healthy sexual culture. We don't have a normalized everydayness to sex where we approach it with variability and understanding of good days, bad days, average days, amazing days, you know, kind of days. And we just think, God, it's going to be great all the time. Or we only Mm. see it being good all the time. or We only see it being perfect all the time, but we actually can't see into everyone else's sex lives in the way that we can other parts of their lives. So, so much of it is assumption based as well. So I really think it's a melting pot of all of that stuff. 
really interesting it's kind of like Instagram on steroids this idea that like we kind of only see sex when it's like hot steamy perfect in a film and then wonder what's wrong yeah in films tv but porn um and you know there's so much accessibility to that version of sex Mm. and very little accessibility to the normal everyday real life versions of it I'm so interested in the conversation between like love and lust. It's so confusing because in in partnerships, there could be so much love and then their sex life goes through a change. And then it's like, well, does this mean I don't love them as much anymore? But I think I do. But just like the lust has changed. What is your, your thoughts on this like common, I guess, narrative, this idea that you kind of like fall out of lust after a while? Is that true? The thing is, sex changes. I actually asked someone this on my podcast. I was interviewing um, Andrew G. Marshall, who is an author of something like 22 books on relationships. He's amazing. And I said to him, why does sex change? And he just was like, well, why wouldn't it? Everything else changes. We change. He was like, are you the same person you were 10 years ago? I was like, no, absolutely not. And he was like, exactly. And I think, again, it goes back to this idea that we are told this is sex, this is what good sex looks like, and this is how you do it. It should stay the same all the time. And so the minute it changes, we think we've got a problem here, or the problem is in me. What we tend to do is internalize. And actually, it should change, and our relationships change, and we get to know someone better. And, you know, the novelty wears off, but it's replaced with a sense of security. You know, Esther Perel talks about this exchange of kind of, you know, erotic novelty, excitement, for stability, security, safety, um, comfort, routine. And we see this kind of almost like a a weighing scales, you know, as one goes up, the other one comes down, how we have to almost inject eroticism then into the secure and stable environment. But often, or, you know, most people settling into relationships, that's the thing that they want. And it is possible to have both, but I think you have to consciously work at it because as humans we habitualize that's what we do we get used to things we get used to people we learn our walk to work we you know that that's how our brain works it adapts it gets used to things so we don't need to think about so much and habits are a part of that and I think our sex lives aren't aren't going to escape that but for some reason we think they should when you say you kind of got to work at it what does working your sex life look like And if you can share any advice, that would be amazing. I think the first thing is just acknowledging that it shouldn't just happen. You know, nothing else Mm. in our lives just happens. (laughs) Um, But we, you know, we put effort into things. We work, we work at stuff. We think about, even think about school. You know, we have homework. We Mm. listen in lessons. We have to do extra reading if we don't understand something. Or we, we put in and then we get out. And I think that we have this, not quite Disney view, but just this idea that sex and relationships just should happen Mm. and that they are exempt from us having to work at it. And we don't like the idea of having to work at sex. We don't like the idea of scheduling time for intimacy because it goes against all our understanding of what we think it should be like or what it's been shown. But I think if you spoke to anyone they would say, yeah, actually, I think we do have to work at this. And relationships, I think, are some of the hardest work we'll ever do in our lives. 
Absolutely. It is, um, yeah, this kind of, I guess, like myth of spontaneity that has to tie in with sexual impulse. It does feel to your point where, you know, security often replaces spontaneity and spontaneity can make us anxious, but also be exciting. We, we think that spontaneity is like the holy grail of sex. Mm. And I don't really know where that comes from. And one of my tutors um, or my master's said, I always remember her saying this, she was saying, I don't understand where this comes from because on a first date or, you know, an early date when we have sex with someone, it's all foreplay. You know, we've Mm -hmm. planned it out in our heads. We are going on a date with them. We, you know, have drinks, have dinner, go back to theirs. That's not spontaneous. Mm -hmm. She was like, the idea is kind of already there. The, The seeds are already planted, but we think for some reason that that is spontaneous. And I was really interested in someone flipping that perspective. So I think you asked me for um, some advice or anything that would help. Yeah. With that. I think that is one thing is trying to kind of break away from these ideas that it's not okay to acknowledge or work at something or put the effort into it or to say, do you know what, should we just make some time for us on Tuesday night and put our phones down at 8.30 and either go to bed early or just sit on the sofa and talk or sit across the table from each other. Because those things, what we call sexual currency, which is basically anything kind of sexual that isn't sex. So a kiss, a hug, a touch, a stroke, a massage, whatever that is, we can build sexual currency in our relationships and in our sex lives. And that goes kind of a long way to building those kind of steps towards sex. And we know that desire is context dependent and can be triggered and is responsive. And so all of those things are creating kind of fertile ground for desire to grow from. And that is a big part of our sex lives. Is it a myth that one gender has a more sexual drive than another gender? Well, what we talk about now is that actually there isn't a sex drive. We don't have a drive. Sex is a motivation. Mm. So we see that arousal operates both similarly and differently in both genders. But I think desire is the big thing here, which is the want. That does change. And we need to learn how to make it work. But I see lack of sexual desire so we talk about arousal being the body's physical ability to prepare for sex desire being the want for sexual experiences i see difficulties with both so arousal being i suppose more biological in both genders in both sexes and again i think a lot of it is how we evolutionarily we have all these ideas and then when something doesn't look like those historic narratives we think okay what's the problem here is the problem me is the problem them I see a lot of shame when working with couples like that so for example if we have a couple where the female partner would like sex more frequently than a male partner and they both feel shame about that but it's just how that works for them and their relationship and there's no reason for there to be shame about it but because they think it doesn't fit with what's expected inverted commas they both feel bad about it and you know I've had conversations with couples where I say is this working for you And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, so what's the problem? And it's, we think there's a problem. But if there isn't one, then actually you don't 
need to be here asking for help. It's just about accepting that this is how it works for you. Yeah, really interesting. I think in so many areas of our lives, like to try break away from conditioning. Mm. It's like one of the hardest things that we can do, I guess, because it's so ingrained in us that, you know, and I'm and I'm speaking from the perspective of, of a heterosexual woman, but this, you know, like I definitely feel like I've been conditioned this way to assume that, oh, men have to pursue women, you know, and I'm like challenging all of these ideas of like, oh, really? Is that really the case that women have to just kind of sit there passively, kind of like waiting to be pursued? Mm. It feels just like quite archaic. I think it's so interesting, all of those ideas that we all hold true. And I do an exercise in therapy with people quite kind of early in the therapy process where we write out all of the beliefs that someone might hold about sex. So they could be exactly like you just said, um, men initiate sex or men initiate sex and women respond. Um, sex has to last for a certain amount of time. One or both partners must always orgasm. An erection must be rock hard for the entire sexual experience every time. Things like this that are really limiting. And when I work through them with people, we then unpick each one and we challenge them, we talk about them. And we say, okay, but where did that message come from? Who told you that? Is that factual and in the end a lot of the time we kind of just get to mm, society I just think that I don't mm. really know where it comes from so so much of this stuff is really invisible as well and it's just kind of absorbed or we pick it up you know messages from different places that are reinforced all the time but then they're not necessarily helping us I love that word invisible because they're invisible but yet like internally so loud mm. and it, it does take a moment like what it sounds like a really great exercise because I'm sure all of us are so unaware of the beliefs that are driving how we feel about a situation and I think the unawareness bit is really interesting and I guess that's you know one of the beauties of therapy is you're building awareness of yourself but we so often aren't aware that they're even there, but they are the kind of invisible rules that we are living our sex lives by or governing our sex lives by. And then we see often clashes. So this is a really basic example, but good girls don't have sex. Mm. And then you have someone who is having sex with new partners and they feel shame about it because they believe that what they're doing means that it reflects on them as a person mm. and then they start having physical symptoms and if you then unpick that with someone if you're lucky enough to be able to unpick that with someone for example in a therapy context you can see how their body is reacting to emotionally how they're feeling and actually you can really work with that with someone but you know those are kind of internalized messages they're not actually how that person is feeling or what about what they're doing now, they're historical. Wow. So exploring beliefs feels like a huge part of like the psychosexual journey, but what other factors or things really are brought in when you are looking at the psychosexual healing of someone? So a lot of it is to do with the relationship that someone has with their body. Mm. We explore that. They kind of get to know their body. We do touch-based exercises. Um, they do them at home. Psychosexual therapy is completely hands-off. And it's about encouraging people to kind of get to know themselves and feel comfortable with themselves. And again, we have a lot of messages about what bodies should, in inverted commas, look like, both male and female. 
what is considered attractive, how they should operate, and a huge part of it is education. So kind of mindset, you know, physical body relationship with self, I think are the big pillars of what we do in psychosexual therapy. I think, again, the body thing is fascinating because I might have been working with someone who, as a child, had repeated urine infections. Mm. And that might be something that's never been flagged up and related to where they're at right now and struggling with pelvic difficulties or anxiety around sex. That could be quite a clear link, but it might be something that's never really been looked at. But it's an anxiety about having pain based on a physical symptom, which might not be current. And so there's all these little clues that we're looking for kind of all the time that help us to build that picture. So what is the relationship then between sex and stress? That's huge. (laughs) I think um, sex can relieve stress and also cause a lot of stress for a lot of people. Mm. And stress levels can impact sex. And we see that also medications, for example, that help people with stress or anxiety can also inhibit sexual arousal or can impact people sexually. I interviewed Emmy Nagoski on my podcast for the first episode of this season. She was saying even in her experience of taking medication to help, the first thing that her psychiatrist said to her was just be aware, you know, this is really going to ruin your sex life. And she was like, well, can we frame that a bit differently? You know, basically being a kind of world leading expert in this, but can we look at that a different way? Because that's the first thing you've led with. So obviously I'm going to go home and the next time I get into a sexual situation, I'm going to think, oh, but I was told that. So therefore, and she was saying, how can I adapt the thinking and changes around this in order to still have both? And I think it was an amazing example of, again, you know, how we talk about these things or how these things are framed. But I work with particularly a lot of people that are very anxious about sex and very anxious about whether it's performance, you know, which is for me, not the the focus of sex, but what sex means, what it means to them, how it makes them feel. And that can create incredibly stressful sexual experiences and avoidance behaviours a lot of the time. We also then see that, you know, things like stress, higher cortisol levels, when people are really preoccupied and in their heads, what they struggle to do is to get into the right headspace to enjoy sexual experiences. So we see this difficulty in switching off enough to get us into a sexual space. And so stress can be a massive inhibitor of sex as well. So how do you advise people to, like, what can they do to like maybe manage their stress levels when they know they've like potentially scheduled a date with their partner? Or even if you're, you know, single and just self-sexual wellness is being interrupted due to stress, what kind of tips do you share? Yeah, I think self-sexual focus, like masturbation, self-pleasure is a big part of this as well, because the conversation around sex often focuses around people in relationships and in couples. And one of the things I would say is that orgasms are a great form of stress relief. We see that you have a huge um, neurochemical rush that actually that that can improve stress, reduce cortisol levels. And 
if you are cre- setting up a date or seeing a partner or something and you're feeling stressed about it, take the pressure off. And what this is why as psychosexual therapists, we don't schedule sex. We don't say schedule sex. We say schedule you know, intimate time, couple time. Mm-hmm. I always invite people to kind of say, you know, name it, whatever they want to name it. Because building up that pressure can create more anticipation and more anxiety. And again, we break it down into baby steps. I think a lot of the time, this is what we do. It's a, it's a bit like aversion therapy sometimes. You know, we take little steps towards in order that we can accommodate our feelings and manage the anxiety without the pressure point, which is often intercourse for people. So we take that away and we create these kind of steps towards. And with that comes confidence as well as an increase in ability. Yes. And to your point about relationship with the body, I guess also this isn't necessarily an overnight process. I really like the term and I heard it quite recently, um, body neutrality. Mm. I have been really interested in it as a concept. So this idea of kind of not really thinking about your body, because I think there's a lot of pressure sometimes to like love your body. And some people Mm. are like, I don't. Yeah. And my relationship with my body is complicated or it's complex or you know, I feel disappointed or I feel let down, it failed me. I think that we shouldn't push people to have to be that way. But actually this idea of body neutrality, which is kind of just accepting it for what it is and not really thinking about it that much, mm. I think is can be really helpful for some people. Because again, that pressure to love your body, if you don't love your body, you're like, oh, I'm failing. <laughs> it's just, it's this kind of cyclical process. But in terms of, kind of breaking away from stuff I think we sometimes do need to I talk a lot about side of switching off to turn on and this is where we see techniques like mindfulness kind of coming into psychosexual therapy and into people's sex lives because we really want in order to have the best sexual experiences to not really be thinking about anything but just to be in the moment and enjoying it and experiencing and feeling and that's really hard when we're stressed and it's really hard when we're distracted and that part of our brain is saying to us something stressful is happening here and that's not helping us that's actually taking away if we're in fight flight freeze your your body and your brain are not prioritizing sex mm. it's not going to help you in that moment so you have the kind of wanting to be sexual but with your brain being like this is a threat and so you've got again these two operational systems kind of hitting up against each other What are your thoughts on attachment styles and then how that leads into sexual wellness? I love the book Attached. (laughs) I recommend it. It's by Amé Levine. I recommend it to so many people that I work with because I think the the danger actually is that it's so good and people like it so much that then you see everything through an attachment lens. And so Mm. I always say to people, try not to do that. I think it can really highlight patterns and dynamics and that's really helpful for understanding what's going on in relationships and so we might see someone with for example a kind of more avoidant attachment style pulling away more or that creating more distance and actually that sex can be a way of doing that or not having sex can be a way of doing that can be a way of controlling that feeling whereas we might see that someone who has an an anxious attachment style can use sex as a vehicle for closeness Mm. or feeling closer or closing that gap and secure people might be able to if you've got two partners who are secure kind of move through different stages 
together I mean those are very crude and basic examples but Mm. I absolutely think that attachment style plays a role in sex lives yeah it's really interesting I'm interested to know kind of your opinion on dating apps and if they're influencing attachment styles because more and more am I hearing just like in conversations with friends but also in workshops is this real fear of intimacy and rejection and actually like a tendency for avoidance what are your thoughts on on that it's really complicated isn't it because dating apps have meant that so many couples now exist yeah it has created ways for people to have relationships and I can't remember who it was or where I read it but I think there's something like 25 percent of relationships like current modern relationships meet online in some form that's amazing shape or another so I think I don't think we can kind of fight dating apps I think they're a part of our culture a part of the internet a part of kind of how life works I think it's easier for people to avoid dealing with communications and things that they would find difficult to do in person I, I think ghosting is can be really crippling for people to be on the receiving end of there's no explanation again you internalize and I think we see a lot of those behaviors that we wouldn't necessarily see with in-person dating a lot of the Mm. time and I think that because we don't have that face-to-face sitting with someone in real life kind of relationship it's easier to just shut the door it's easier to Mm. behave in a way which wouldn't be as socially acceptable and isn't often responsible Mm. and I think that what we are seeing a bit more now is conversations around how that kind of behavior is really not good for people's mental health Mm. that if you are talking to someone and you decide you don't want to talk to them anymore just say yeah rather than leaving them thinking what's going on here because we ruminate as humans you know this idea of metacognition we think about our thinking we think about our thoughts and that can be really damaging for people yeah absolutely and I guess to be fair to like humankind, this is such new behaviors. Like, as you just said, 13 years old, the iPhone, I guess we're only really talking about kind of like social etiquette when it comes to these new technologies and mm-hmm. how they interact with our intimacy. You know, kindness is so important in order for us to be comfortable and staying open. Etiquette is a really interesting word, actually, that you use there, because I think that's the thing. There aren't any rules. Mm. It's, a, it's a bit like the Wild West. You know, I know from talking to lots of people about dating apps and stuff, it's really hard. Like I have such respect for people that are really trying. And, you know, the pandemic threw so much stuff up in terms of dating and people who were looking for partners and, you know, physically couldn't go on dates or had to, if they wanted to try and meet someone, then move to trying to date online, which wasn't their preference. And I think, I do think it has changed things dramatically but equally it does offer a platform for people to meet people that they would have never had a chance yeah. to meet before so it's not it's not all bad what are your thoughts on this growing curiosity of polyamory multiple partners and this is definitely we've got a lot of questions in from the audience about this like is monogamy this outdated concept and I always talk to my mum about this as well about her kind of her thoughts because there is definitely questioning of what has been Mm. what are your mum's thoughts I want to know (laughs) she because she has a practice in the clinic 
And she often thinks that there is this belief that the grass is greener. And actually, often everyone's got issues. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not like there is this land that is issue free and you just need to hop the fence. Mm. That's mainly her, her thought towards it is relationships are really hard. And often because the narrative is like, like, Oh, relationships supposed to be this glorious, Holy grail Mm. that it's easy to think that you're in the wrong one. I think relationships are imperfect. I think even people in polyamorous relationships would say that their relationships are imperfect in some way. I think there's a lot of things going on. So one of my favorite quotes, again, from Esther Perel is um, monogamy used to be one person for a lifetime and now it's one person at a time. Right. We see lots of changes. So I think religion is not such a big part of modern life as it used to be. And marriage as an institution was really linked to religion. I think that we see that divorce is not considered as taboo or such a big deal anymore. I think that we see that a lot of people don't need to get married anymore I don't feel that they want to get married or want to be committed in that way we see commitment in plenty of ways you're buying property together um, having children that marriage doesn't feel necessary for some people and I think as a culture and a society we're becoming more explorative and more accepting slowly of different ways of doing things and polyamory has been around probably since like the dawn of man. And we see that polygamy, for example, is quite linked to certain cultures. And I think that we also understand as humans now, we can have more than one person that can meet our needs or that there are different ways of doing relationships or different ways of being in relationships. And we can choose. I think we don't all feel like we have to fit a model which was the only option that was presented to us. Mm. And I think that, you know, with things like the internet and information and conversations and podcasts and everything, we are more open to seeing what different choices look like. That's really interesting. But again, it's like a fight against conditioning Mm. because we've all been so heavily conditioned by the remnants of religion and also not for, again, that model does work for many people too. Absolutely. Marriage offers people long-term relationships, you know, committed relationships offer lots of people what they want and need, but Mm. no human is one size fits all. What a line, I think, to sum up this brilliant conversation. (laughs) Really, thank you so much. Your podcast is excellent. Would you mind telling us a little bit about what that's about? And we'll put links into the show notes. And also, how is the best way for people to find you? And how can people work with you? Yeah, so my podcast is The Sexual Wellness Sessions. And actually, we did um, an episode on polyamory, if people are. (laughs) I do have more questions on that. So really, it is, I describe it as informal, but informative. And every episode is a zooming in on a topic. So whether that topic is desire, erectile dysfunction, postnatal sex lives, I did one on motherhood and sex lives, the future of sex, grief and sex, Mm. um, stress and sex. Really, they are the topics that I feel and the conversations I feel I'm having in the therapy room a lot. And I feel would help less people to feel like they need to go to therapy to have if that Mm. makes sense. Yeah. So it's a way of me kind of putting that out into the world, which hopefully helps people to start 
exploring it without feeling like they have to go, for example, to therapy. And therapy isn't right for everyone is the other thing that I always, always say and isn't available for everyone. So as a therapist, I think I, it's important that we say that. And my website is just my name, Kate Moyle, probably best to find me on Instagram, which is Kate Moyle Therapy. We'll put all of that in the show notes so you can find Kate if you have any more questions. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening. It would be a huge support if you wouldn't mind rating, subscribing and sharing this podcast. I also would love to hear from you. So please find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram, DM me and I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics that we discuss. Download Happy Not Perfect, my app that's designed to boost your mood and help you sleep and give you mindfulness in less than five minutes. It's packed full of science-backed tools and rituals to give your mind the care it needs. Sending lots of love and energy. See you next time. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.